be positive about it. Well, thank you very much, Deborah. It's a great privilege to be speaking as part of this very interesting and important uh, series, um, whose aims uh, and emphases I hold uh, very dear to my heart. Um, about this time last week, uh, as I understand it, the British Prime Minister David Cameron was jetting across uh, the Atlantic Ocean to uh, Jamaica. And uh, he brought with him the dubious gift of a prison uh, for the population of uh, Jamaica and uh, was uh, questioned during uh, one of the um, meetings he had with Jamaican politicians uh, directly about uh, Britain's uh, uh, involvement in um, centuries of um, exploitation on the island of Jamaica uh, and its responsibility for the slave trade and slavery uh, on the island. And his response was long-winded but be could be summarized using the following three words. Let's move on. Right? But moving on from generations of enslavement is not easy. And the selective treatment of Britain's enslaving past that British politicians frequently mention makes the prospect of moving on even more difficult, as far as I'm concerned. And I hope you'll agree with me. It's absolutely striking to me how often British politicians uh, mention, when they're trying to sort of prop up the idea of British greatness, how often they mention the uh, uh, abolitionists. And I did a, a bit of research, I did quite a lot of research, this was a, a smaller piece of research. Um, at every point when David Cameron was asked to define Britishness over the past sort of three or four years, he mentioned the abolition. At the G20 summit, in September 2013, there's a famous moment when word got round that Vladimir Putin had dismissed Britain as a small island that nobody pays any attention to. I mean, there's a number of problems with that statement. Britain's not a particularly small island. Um, and uh, Cameron sort of jumped up into the middle of the kind of coffee break and did this kind of appalling speech that was something straight out of Love Actually about a sort of laundry list of great British achievements. Again, at the center of that was the abolition. Abolition is the principal crutch or prop or buttress for British greatness. He did it again, that desperate move up to uh, Aberdeen just before the Scots referendum. You don't want to break away from Britain because then you would lose this wonderful heritage of being part of you know, the greatest abolitionist nation in, in, in world history. And conveniently for my purposes, George Osborne did it again yesterday. We, I think he said, uh, the Tories were a part of the government that abolished the uh, slave trade, right? So it doesn't seem like they're moving on from the history of abolition. Um, they're moving on from the history of slavery, but there's no moving on from the history of abolition. Uh, and this selective treatment of the history of the relationship of British ideals and British people and the British state uh, and British institutions to its slavery past is, is, is profoundly problematic. Um, 
because just as the abolition is in a way the central prop, historically speaking, of the idea of uh, Great Britain, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the very idea of Britain itself is inextricably linked uh, to the uh, history of enslavement and slavery and the slave trade. And that's basically the theme I'm going to explore over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. What is the significance of this sort of symbiotic relationship between the formation of Britain and the development of slavery and the slave trade? Now, to get at that question, you need to go right back. It's kind of the opposite of moving on. We're moving right back <laughs> into the middle of the 17th century, when, of course, we're talking mainly about English identity rather than British identity. But it's the 17th century story of England in which the stereotypical political and constitutional determinants of British I identity are forged. Right? The Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, religious toleration, deregulated press, parliamentary supremacy, uh, all of these things that were, uh, in a sense, uh, gathered together under this Magna Carta brand that we've also been ce celebrating uh, fairly recently. But at the very same point in time, uh, England becomes heavily involved in uh, human trafficking on an enormous scale. And I would argue that as this idea of Englishness becomes more formative and more influential, so the scale of enslavement uh, increases. Um, so it's just not possible to exclusively celebrate Britishness with reference to abolition without paying close attention to the way in which the idea of Britain is in a sense responsible for the largest forced intercontinental human migration in all of history. Okay. So, as I said, we've got to go right back into the 17th century. And we go right into, let's say, uh, the middle of the 17th century, uh, the period after the end of the English Civil War, when the English monarchy is uh, restored. There's a tremendously dynamic period of economic growth from 1660 uh, right up until uh, the uh, warfares that characterized the decades either side of the beginning of the 18th century. Excuse me. And that economic growth to a large extent is fueled by the development of overseas trade. That is the point at which London in particular becomes central to a global network of trade. And um, this uh, kick-starting of international trade has a lot to do with the formation of uh, what we would call multinational corporations, essentially. Joint stock monopoly corporations, the most famous of which is the East India Company. Um, the Hudson's Bay Company is the only one that's still going. They have Russia Company, Levant Company, uh, Massachusetts Bay Company. These organizations play a crucial part as a kind of kick-start to the development of an English presence overseas. And you won't be surprised to hear there is one that, that, that really does a great deal to start the transatlantic slave trade. An organization called the Royal African Company. Founded uh, essentially in 1660, sort of rechartered a couple of times into the 1660s and 1670s. The point I want to make about the African Company, uh, and it's a monopolistic organization, is that it has a very specific political identity, and, and even more than that, a constitutional identity. 
for those of you who've been trying to translate the Latin that is the company's motto up there, I'll, I'll, I'll give it another go. The kingdom is flourishing due to royal patronage and the nation is flourishing due to business. Right? So if you want to start your economy and you really want to grow the economy, you need to have a uh, strong monarchy, a non-deliberative uh, political system. Uh, in other words, absolutist monarchy on a kind of European model is the best way to start your economy. You need strong leadership. Right? And these uh, joint stock monopoly companies are a perfect demonstration of the economic potential of absolutist uh, the absolutist monarchs who were really responsible for the establishment of this uh, organization. Charles II and then James II. They're not just figureheads who signed the charter and grant the monopolistic uh, power to, 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 to establish these organizations, but in the case of James II, they are also the CEO. And they show up to the meetings. They're, they're investors and they're actually there uh, organizing the trade uh, directly. So they, it, it's the only one of these joint stock companies that has the royal prefix. And that gives the game away. It's very, very closely connected uh, to uh, a traditional conception of divine right kingship. That's all right. I mean, I, I can hear myself fine, but I, can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, and actually, the company via Adam Smith and other late 18th century uh, political economists is typically understood because it was a monopoly as a total failure, inefficient, naturally inefficient, and, 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 and naturally uh, unlikely to succeed economically. But that's not the case. In fact, the company becomes the single most prolific human trafficking organization in the history of the transatlantic slave trade. <coughs> Shipping about 150,000 enslaved Africans, uh, largely from um, the Gold Coast, uh, what is now Ghana, to uh, primarily Barbados and Jamaica itself. In other words, not to mainland North America, but to the Caribbean. Okay? One of the uh, early investors in the company, famously, was uh, John Locke, the famous uh, liberal, uh, in inverted commas, liberal uh, uh, philosopher, who um, really indicates uh, the beginnings of what becomes a very important paradox in the history of slavery. Uh, which is the involvement of uh, ideas of freedom and liberty in generating and sustaining the slave trade and slavery. As I said, the company has its uh, base in the city of London, uh, Leadenhall Street, just down the road from the East India Company, uh, and it's responsible for uh, compiling cargoes of English export goods, which then pass down to the west coast of Africa, are exchanged for gold uh, or redwood dyes, uh, and enslaved African people and then transported those people, uh, as I said, predominantly to the Caribbean. That's its basic business model and it's a fairly familiar one. This is uh, Cape Coast Castle, it's West African uh, headquarters which you can still go to today in uh, modern day Ghana. Uh, that essentially is a 19th century refit of a 17th century structure, although so some of the interiors of the original 17th century structure are essentially still in, in place. And as I said, the primary um, 
goods shipped were uh, gold uh, to make the famous Guinea coin, which is a new coin named after the 17th century word for Africa. Uh, you can just about make out um, yeah, the elephant and castle emblem. That's how you know that's West African gold. Um, the redwood dye was supposedly used as a uh, dyeing stuff to produce the British Army uniforms um, from African redwood trees and fam famously ivory uh, and also, of course enslaved human beings as well. And the company is, during the 1670s and 1680s, tremendously successful. Um, it returns huge dividends to its investors uh, and uh, ships in you know, tens and thousands of tons uh, of gold uh, and other uh, commodities. What are the goods that the company is shipping out? Um, lots of imported uh, textiles from India by the end of the 17th century. Uh, also large uh, quantities of traditional English exports, which are woolen-based uh, to West Africa, but increasingly guns, which were good for increasing the supply of the enslaved by encouraging and inciting warfare, uh, and also uh, alcohol. But there's a big problem with the company from a certain important standpoint. The company appeared to offend um, a, a sort of burgeoning idea of what it meant to be English. That constitutional tradition that becomes so important in the 17th century and is really how we understand the distinctiveness of the English constitutional tradition um, begins to turn its attention to these joint stock monopoly companies. They receive their backing from uh, royal prerogative rather than parliament. They have enforcement powers that involve civil law courts rather than common law courts. Uh, and they are monopolies, which is you know, meant, meant to be against the sort of birthright of the English subject. Um, so a version of Englishness emerges which becomes oppositional to the company uh, and begins to inform and become the kind of rallying cry for a very effective lobby uh, in the courts and in parliament who slowly but surely uh, dismantle the African company's monopoly. Right? So from about 1690 to about 1712, 13, there's almost constant debate in the English parliament about how the slave trade should be managed. Should it be managed by a royal prerogative monopoly company, the African company, or should it be managed by uh, essentially the, uh, uh, the it, should it all be left to the kind of free initiative of individual people? Should the slave trade, uh, in a sense, be freed? And this leads by 1712, as I mentioned, to a total deregulation of the slave trade. No other uh, trade beyond Europe had been totally deregulated. All of the others had been uh, either very heavily taxed or were still maintained through joint stock monopoly companies. So it's quite ironic from a British perspective that it's the slave trade that becomes the first example of a free trade in anything. Right? What you have here is a graph showing to you how uh, the uh, deregulation of the trade leads to a big explosion in, in its volume. Um, the red line, these, by the way, are the number of voyages uh, uh, attempted uh, in each of those years. The red line is the number um, conducted by so-called free traders in the enslaved, people who were known in Parliament as the separate traders. The blue line is the company. You can see it's doing okay for a bit. 
in the uh, 1680s. And the green line, we're not going to dwell on this too much, is something called the South Sea Company, which dabbles in slave trading for a very limited period. But to, 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 to condense that chart into one statement, you'd have to understand that the deregulation of the trade uh, increases the capacity of the English slave trade by about 300%. Right? If we know that the African company is already the most prolific human trafficking organization in human history, increasing that by 300%, you've got a pretty impressive uh, slave trading operation. Indeed, this is why England becomes the most prolific slave trading nation during the 18th century. If it hadn't have abolished the slave trade in 1807, it would have exceeded uh, the total capacity of its, uh, in a sense, dubious rival, uh, Brazil slash Portugal. So it's in seeking to free the slave trade that the slave trade becomes supreme uh, for the English. <coughs> Other consequences are the movement of slave trading initiative out of London and into the provincial ports of Bristol and Liverpool. So you can see the darker line there is this total slave trading numbers from uh, London. And then you've got Bristol in green and Liverpool in blue. One of the great points of opposition against these companies was they were London-based. And all the provincial outports, uh, the, the, the ports in uh, the West Country and elsewhere, wanted a piece of the action. Uh, and so deregulating the company's monopoly basically provided the kind of commercial opportunity for these other ports to get involved. It takes a long time but uh, Bristol and then Liverpool become the most important slave trading nations. Although it's very important to stress, London ships more slaves than Bristol does. We don't often know that about uh, the history of slave trading in London, but that's uh, an important fact to take away. Other consequences include shifting the embarkation points of slaves away from Cape Coast and further uh, west into Senegambia and further south to Angola. So again, the area over which these free traders are trading is much bigger than the monopoly company itself, who tend to focus on these forts uh, for their slave trading transactions. But most importantly, I think, from a sort of historian's point of view, is that the English had not provided an adequate supply of the enslaved to mainland North America until the company was deregulated. So in a sense, um, the deregulation of the trade is the foundation of American slavery. It becomes very important, not just from a British perspective, but from an American perspective, this story. Um, it's British freedom that founds the American slavery experience. That's the basic formula. Now, who were these uh, free trading lobbyists who set about uh, flying the flag of freedom to massively expand enslavement? Um, they were a kind of motley crew of kind of city elite merchants, uh, provincial merchants, sort of commercial outsiders, Huguenot immigrants, and the kind of cockney retailers. One of the things that happens in Parliament is that the sort of patrician company is always dismissing these separate traders as kind of upstart cockney street hawkers. Um, that gives you some insight into the sort of class politics behind the rivalry between uh, the company uh, and its uh, free trading opponents. But that's not to say that some of these people were not very, very rich indeed. Um, and they were essentially diversifying their commercial interests into slave trading from other things. So on the left there, you have a man called uh, Humphrey Morris, 
who becomes you know, one of the most important positions in the City of London, becomes Governor of the Bank of England. Even more wealthy and important on the right there is a man called Gilbert Heathcote, uh, a merchant who emerges out of Derbyshire, but becomes, at his death, uh, the richest commoner in England. His, his estate is worth about £750,000 uh, in about 1715, 1720. Got a lovely uh, sign on his gravestone from the Latin translates as never been sued. <laughs> it's an important uh, case to take away. And some of these other buildings that we might associate with this deregulation moment, that's Kew Palace, uh, built for a uh, London merchant of the late 17th century, Richard Levitt, who's a Virginia merchant who gets involved in the deregulation craze for slave trading. And as I said before, there's the accusation that they're nothing more than sort of what, what they describe as uh, Cornhill upstarts. Cornhill is the primary kind of uh, retailing district of the city of London. And there's, a, there's an image of a Cornhill uh, shop. And for those of you from South London, uh, one of the very important uh, separate traders, a man called Peter Pagan, who's a uh, Belgian, now we call it uh, from the Low Countries, uh, Protestant uh, Huguenot immigrant into London who buys uh, this uh, Wandsworth Manor House from the royal family itself. It's a wonderful uh, emblem of what's happening, this transferal of economic initiative from the state to the merchants. Uh, and this um, beautiful uh, 17th century mansion was demolished, I think, in the 19, early 1900s to make way for what becomes the a A3. It's right on the top of the hill in Wandsworth. Um, but the, the, the architecture here is just communicating to you, I hope, the extent to which um, the deregulation of the trade provides a kind of uh, a means of social mobility uh, for some of these uh, outsider merchant grandees. Most of the merchant establishment were already tied up into uh, the joint stock companies. Um, but the deregulation of these trades uh, provides a real opportunity uh, for people to get a, a leg up. Now, what explains the victory of this motley crew of lobbyists? It's very important. I want to dwell on this uh, for a little bit uh, uh, of time. It has to be said, there are very important transnational uh, uh, phenomena that are forcing the hand of the African company and uh, are encouraging the opponents uh, of the company's monopoly. The separate traders, the deregulating merchants, are essentially representatives of a growing Atlantic economy. Sugar, tobacco, all of the things that are being produced in the American colonies and the Caribbean. And they obviously want to integrate their commercial interests by getting into slave trading as well. So they can essentially integrate their economies together. So you know, if there's an overall trend, it's that the African company is unable to satisfy this Atlantic constituency as a monopoly company. And there's a lot of complaint about the fact that it's fixing prices and limiting economic opportunity as a monopoly, right? The sort of things you'd expect people to say. The other very important thing is the West African political situation as well. The African company, a bit like the East India Company, wants to set up a territorial presence in West Africa. It wants to establish plantations in West Africa. That's the cheapest thing to do. The transportation of 12.5 million people across the Atlantic is the most expensive way you could do it. You want plantations in West Africa, right? But the local African polities 
and uh, leaders strongly resent the African companies' uh, interruption of their sovereignty or any attempts to uh, impose their political will on their surroundings. Indeed, unlike the East India Company, the African company has to pay ground rent to African princes. It's never actually a sovereign entity uh, in that region. So the West Africans are profoundly suspicious of the company, and they do what the European empires are always supposed to do, which is to divide and rule. They seek to demolish the purchasing power of the mon monopoly company and have it fractured up and atomized into a de uh, free trade because they can then impose prices on the slave traders, which is exactly what they do. The company always says, well, if you have a company, you have one buyer, then um, we can impose prices on the African slave vendors. And actually, that turns out to be true. This is where the economic theory just doesn't work. If you deregulate a trade, you expect prices to go down. But this trade, the prices go up. Because of the uh, price inelasticity of uh, demand for slave labor. This, this demand for slave labor is so intense in the uh, American colonies and the prices of those commodities are allowing uh, the purchasers of slaves to pay pretty much whatever price the Africans wish to sell at. Okay? So that's the kind of transnational context. But my subject is about the importance of this debate about the meaning of national identity in Britain. I would say this is as important. It's a, it's a public parliamentary contest about what it means to be British and what sort of, what would, a, what would a British slave trade look like? Well, you know, you'd let anyone participate. It would be a natural birthright. It would be, it would be a constitutional privilege to be able to uh, trade in human beings, just like habeas corpus or the right to a jury trial. This is the way people talk about the slave trade in uh, the late 17th and early 18th century. So there are basically four ingredients um, to uh, this story of how this notion of national identity plays into this idea of slave trade expansion. One of them is uh, the idea of the national interest itself. This is relevant in the abolition too. So both sides in the debate about the future of the British slave trade agreed that the trade represented a national project of critical importance. Both sides sought to advance what they frequently referred to as the national interest. But they differed on precisely what this meant. For the African company, the national interest was the interest of the British state. For the independent slave traders who lobbied against the African, African company, the national interest was the interest of the British population at large. The British people should enjoy the right to trade in while the African companies saw the English state kickstart the English slave trade, the proponents of a free trade in the enslaved wished to demonstrate what the commercial acumen of the British nation could achieve. As such, the slave trade developed as the result of an emergent national popular will. Secondly, the two sides, monopoly and anti-monopoly, disagreed about what the English constitution was. A lot of people still do, right? For the African company, uh, the constitution was really ordered by this idea of not quite divine right monarchy, but the power of royal prerogative. And actually, constitutional theorists were on their side. That is what the constitution was uh, for most of the 17th century. 
Slave trade escalation depended upon constitutional changes regularly depicted at the heart of British self-imagining. I'm thinking again of Magna Carta. The African company's enforcement power for, for its monopoly derived from the long-established constitutional potency of the royal prerogative within trade regulation. So the, the constitutional argument was on the company's side. Rival long-lived constitutional techniques gained new power and acquired new nationalist associations, as they still have, from the year 1688-89, the so-called Glorious Revolution. These included the common law suspicion of monopolies and celebrations of the right to petition to uphold economic concerns. Both techniques would become mainstream after the departure of James II, 1688, and the revised constitutional settlement of William of Orange that placed Parliament at the centre of overseas trade regulation. Against the backdrop of war with Louis XIV, such constitutional matters became hallmarks for the nation that would endure the Act of Union with Scotland, despite the Act's preservation of Scotland's separate legal traditions. So the, the crucial turning point here is the, the constitutional change that's so often depicted as a kind of moment of British genius. We had a revolution, but it was a peaceful, non-violent one. It took place in the courtrooms and in Parliament, and it was very sort of... Um, yeah, it, it wasn't dramatic in, in the way, there was no bloodshed. It wasn't ideological. It created a, a British myth of constitutional genius that we then went around exporting to the rest of the world. This new exceptionalist constitution provided almost immediate backing for an expanded slave trade. In the spring of 18, 1689, at the height of the Glorious Revolution, a leading barrister in the Court of King's Bench Bartholomew Shower made a successful argument in favor of slave trade expansion and against the African company before the famous liberal judge, Sir John Holt, in a case called Nightingale versus Bridges. That's Sir John Holt. Shower placed great importance upon the right of parliament to regulate the trade and viewed parliamentary approval for a deregulated trade as expressive of national consent. Shower explained why parliamentary management of the trade was preferable to management by the monarchical company. Quote, each subject's vote is included in whatsoever is there done. An act of parliament hath the consent of many men, both past, <coughs> present, and to come. You know, take heed, David Cameron. He explained. Shower also formulated a common law manifesto for independent slave trading. In so doing, he fastened a basic ingredient of national identity to the enlargement of the slave trade. English common law, so Shower contended, quote, distinguishes between bondmen, whose estates are at their lord's will and pleasure, and free men, whose property none can invade, charge, or take away but by their own consent. So free from slavery themselves, the English were protected in their right to develop their property in other human beings. Ultimately, Shower's argument prevailed and the African company lost its constitutional backing. And the national constitution, despite what abolitionists would later say uh, about the common law's inherent antagonism to slavery, proved instrumental to the huge expansion of slavery in the 18th century. The sort of myth-making uh, that we see about the English uh, constitution being antagonistic to slavery, which is the kind of 21st century hangover of that, is the Tory leadership constantly banging on about abolition, that, that begins uh, in the 18th century. And the abolitionists are almost as good propagandists as you know, 
21st century politicians. Uh, but that will not wash. The common law is critical to the development of the slave trade. So the full-scale supreme British slave trade was the result of the rise to primacy of a national constitutional tradition that privileged the liberty of the subject over all else. Without their national consent, the British could not be deprived of their constitutional birthrights. In this case, their freedom to prosper from slavery. The right to trade in slaves then became equivalent with such sacred British rights as the right to political representation and the right to habeas corpus. The largest forced intercontinental migration in human history would be the right, the will, the result, and the pleasure of the, na of the British nation. Aligning the British national cause and, uh, and identity with the cause of slave trade escalation was as crucial to the success of the campaign to enlarge the slave trade as slavery would be to the realization of British greatness through the next century. Third ingredient to this idea of British identity forging with slave trade escalation is, is Parliament itself. The, the kind of linchpin uh, of British constitutional exceptionalism. These arguments were routinely voiced uh, in Parliament, which became the great national institutional support for the expanded slave trade, as it would also be for the abolitionists. They were always saying, well, we were able to abolish it because we have this wonderful parliamentary system. Well, the wonderful parliamentary system set it up in the first place, right? <laughs> the regulatory primacy of parliament brought a new style of lobbying to Westminster, more deliberative, more public, more national in its orientation, which suited the architects of Britain's slave trading supremacy. The African company's opponents formed a highly effective lobby that marshaled more petitions and developed a more appealing ideology celebrating the role of the public's consent in deregulating the slave trade. So they're a bit like the techniques the abolitionists are really proud of were actually pioneered by the slave trade escalationists, if you like. They used the recently unregulated press to gather the support of public opinion in their quest for a nationally constituted slave trade. They celebrated the right of the provincial outports throughout Britain and in Scotland to participate in the slave trade to prevent the African company from engrossing the trade in London. They looked forward to a time when all social classes could enjoy the benefit of slave trading and not just the privileged plutocrats of the African company. Here again, they connected an expanded slave trade to national need and to jingoistic conceptions of national birthrights. Finally, the separate traders developed and deployed the elastic rhetoric of freedom as the kind of rallying cry of their uh, quest to expand slavery. The campaign to liberalize the slave trade became a cause that championed national and individual freedom over the slavery of the old, outmoded national constitution. To rally their cause, slave traders celebrated the right to trade as an inherent feature of the national character. One wrote, freedoms of trade are the fundamental point of English liberty. Independent slave traders depicted trading monopolies like the Royal African Company as stains on the national character. One pamphlet in the dispute asserted that monopolies are, quote, the badges of a slavish people. If this so beneficial a trade was but freed from that nest of drones, the African Company, an industry left at liberty farther to improve it, the nation would quickly be convinced that nothing hitherto but an English freedom has been wanting to extend the slave trade. Few lobbies examined and used the connections between these various expressions of freedom at the beginning of the 18th century more than the independent slave traders. Fewer still deployed such arguments for freedom with such persistence to achieve an enlargement of unfreedom on this scale. 
The tactic of associating slave trade escalation first with an intrinsically British notion of freedom compounded the popularity of the cause with nation and state. Britain escalated and expanded the slave trade and slavery in the name of British liberty. With each year of the political campaign to expand the trade, British people, ideals, institutions, and identity became more and more inseparable from the desire to celebrate the trafficking of enslaved Africans and became, therefore, more foundational to the campaign's success and more detrimental to enslaved African lives. The length of the escalationist campaign, the number of people involved, the scale of petitioning, the number of pamphlets, justifications, arguments provide enough information to show that British society values and venerated political institutions promoted slavery long before the abolitionists began to criticize it. The development of the slave trade and the consolidation of American slavery cannot be separated from the development of modern Britain, its society, its creeds, and its institutions. The hallmarks of Augustan British society and modern liberal society in general, deliberative politics, civil society, individual interests, all bear the responsibility for slavery. In helping to expand slavery, British freedom has incurred a debt. A central concern of Britain's involvement with slavery, both past, present, and future, is its computation of that debt. But this story of freedom's debt does not end with the deregulation of the slave trade around 1712. The politics of slavery that I'm talking about uh, produce another counterintuitive phenomenon. Because the Royal African Company did not die in 1712. The company uh, soldiers on. It's very difficult to wind up a corporation because of their constitutional status. And you have to compensate the shareholders, which is expensive. It lived for another 40 years. And in an attempt to improve its political position, having lost the economic debate, it starts to formulate an alternative justification for itself, or it starts to celebrate that justification more and more. Uh, and what is that identity? <coughs> well, the company had always said that as a joint stock monopoly company, as a state entity, it was suspicious of any arrangement that deferred initiative for commercial activities solely to the market. In a sense, it was a regulatory entity who justified itself by saying, you know, if you leave it all to people's you know, avaricious instincts, then you're going to get something pretty nasty at the end. So they start to develop this idea that a company is required to manage the brutality of the trade. Um, you see this in a number of ways. Firstly, there's a move in this sort of later half of the 17th century. Uh, you see sort of little snippets of ambivalence about slavery. Afro Baines, Orinoco, you see the beginning of a sort of uh, rejection of this very utilitarian view that markets can solve all of uh, all commercial problems and that what you need is a state or a regulatory mechanism to prevent the worst excesses of the market from producing negative social outcomes. Right? So the company had already been associated with that view, but when it loses the economic argument to the separate traders, that view comes back again. It's no coincidence that Daniel Defoe um, makes one of the heroes, uh, the hero of Robinson Crusoe, a, a separate trader. Because this was the kind of, in the 1690s, uh, early 18th century, this was the kind of yuppie of the day, the kind of arch capitalist of the day. Um, 
And Defoe was a public uh, promoter of the company because he believed that overseas trade in particular should be managed uh, in a way that guaranteed a continuous supply um, and that basically served sort of diplomatic and state interests rather than the individual economic interests of atomized traders. So one of the directors of the company later on in its history in the early, late 1720s, early 1730s is James Oglethorpe, who's the first person to propose the establishment of a tropical colony in America that doesn't use slavery. And it's no coincidence as far as I'm concerned that he's an African company director. He's part of this movement to sort of say, well, you know, slavery's not very pleasant. Uh, and that's the result of excessive freedom in the market. And actually, we need a regulatory mechanism to, to rein it all in. Uh, the Marxist tradition and the, uh, uh, and the uh, classical economic tradition of the 19th century always said that abolition was an act of deregulation. But it wasn't. It was an act of regulation to rein in the excesses of this excessively free uh, trade. And this really comes to a head. Well, let me just, there's a sort of tangent here. This comes uh, up quite a lot in the 1730s and 40s. The Thomas Coram's Foundling Hospital is a good example of the way in which a corporate entity is used, in this case, the Foundling Hospital, to stimulate population growth. Because people in that circle are starting to talk, to talk about, well, we need to get rid of slavery in the Caribbean, but we don't want to completely ruin uh, the Caribbean economy, so we've got to produce a new labor force to substitute for them. Um, and so it's very clear that some of the political economists in the 1740s are saying, well, the company might be an instrumental entity that would help to manage the shift from African to uh, back to uh, English labor in a tropical context. But it really comes to a head, uh, most of all, just before the company's public death in the early 1750s. It's really a remarkable story, but the company decides to use the biography of a West African prince, uh, William Sasaraku, pictured there, as a sort of ventriloquist's dummy for its own ideology. Say, well, you know, we're, we're the African company. We understand West African society. We understand the importance of using our own regula regulatory machinery to, pro to protect the Africans from the free, free traders. So it's, 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 it's anti-market um, instincts, which as I said was a justification for economic failure, uh, becomes a very important initial secular impetus for the abolitionist movement itself. Okay? So I'm gonna conclude with another British Prime Minister, but just for, for balance, it's going to be a labor, a labor one. <laughs> Old labor, new labor, it's not clear, right? So at the time of the bicentennial celebrations, 2007, Tony Blair famously fell somewhat short of issuing an apology for slavery. As a barrister, he understood the legal implications of that. Um, but he did have the kind of intellect to reflect on an interesting question which was, why is it that slavery developed during the Enlightenment when people seem to care a little bit more about freedom? He only had the nous to ask the question, he didn't want to answer it. And he quickly rushed to a defense of modernity by saying, racism, 
Not the rights of man drove the horrors of slavery. I'm not going to downplay the massive importance of racism in the sustaining of the slave trade and slavery. But I think we have underplayed the significance of the rights of man or their more sort of elastic equivalent, freedom. Although they shape and are shaped by their historic contexts, values and ideals have intergenerational significance and culpability. Such ideas, especially when invoked in the service of the potent currency of national feeling, ought to be open to interrogation. Indeed, national self-interrogation of values across time is central to the realization of a free society and is a primary function of the professional study of history. The idea of freedom is, of course, adaptable enough to be rehabilitated, and the determinants of British national identity can be altered through education, through politics, through culture, and through study and discussion of the past, which we are doing in a few years' time. These activities are, and in and of themselves, beginning points for reparative <coughs> conversations. Freedom's role in helping to end slavery is therefore only the beginning of the long process of repaying freedom's peculiarly British debt. Placing freedom's debt to the enslaved into the story of the emergence of modern British society represents another part of the continuing reconciliation and reckoning with the sins of the past. Rose-tinted, tub-thumping celebrations of the abolitionists one day and dismissiveness of slavery as the forgettable past is self-defeating for British politicians. Liberal ideals, whether in their British settings or not, can't achieve their ambitions until their strange historic careers are broadly understood. Only once this broad understanding has been established can we hope to formulate a national British accommodation with slavery, and only then can the international features of reconciliation proceed. My question is that you showed a graph, uh, and the, in the red, the red uh, line was the free traders, and I noticed it went up and then down. So yep. I wanted to know when it was down, why was the reason that there were less free traders, to general reasons? I wanted to ask, as far as I'm, I understand, um, that the effects of slavery um, goes on for seven generations. So from the beginning, I think we might be about three or four generations now. So um, is that one, one of the reasons why the prime ministers, they're not prepared to apologize? Because um, slavery, if, if it's not in the brutal form, it's still insidious and it's around. So thank you for the questions. Um, yeah, so um, I won't hazard to guess when it was you were so ass um, but the argument about um, the significance of industrialization as a, as a competing alternative model to the slave system of the Caribbean uh, is one that's still very much live um, associated primarily with the Marxist uh, historian uh, of slavery uh, Eric Williams who becomes the first uh, premier of uh, Trinidad, 
Um, two arguments there that you know, uh, the capital from slave trade finances the Industrial Revolution. The second one is that you know, he doesn't mince his words about the abolitionists, that the abolitionists were essentially uh, hypocrites who were really uh, coating their interested arguments in this kind of uh, veil of saintly evangelical language. And that what they were trying to do is to dismantle a, a declining system and replace it with an industrial one. Um, the first of those arguments uh, has attracted less criticism. The second one is still kind of live. But my point about uh, that argument is that it assumes, according to either Marxist or classical economic theory, that the abolitionists are interested in deregulating the economy to create a freer uh, movement of capital uh, to uh, allow the creation of the uh, industrial system. Uh, but I don't think that that's true. The rhetoric of the abolitionists, if you read it carefully from a sort of political constitutional standpoint, is much more interested in using state power to stop this evil. And if you look at it in the long term, you see that, again, it's the uh, deregulation that's the evil, it's the freedom. Too much freedom has been extended to these people, and that what we need is a more powerful state to, to rein them in. And certainly the state is much more powerful by the time the abolition uh, takes place than it is the development of the slave trade. The other thing to bear in mind, I think, is other very famous historical research has gone in to show uh, that you know, the living standards of slaves was comparable or indeed superior to industrial workers. It's very controversial work pursued in a narrowly economistic fashion. It's kind of danger of economic history. Uh, of course, that analysis doesn't really pursue what is difficult sometimes to obtain, the sense of the psychological trauma of being owned by somebody else. Right? But there's a lot of comparative work between the industrial system and let's say the uh, plantation system, the ante antebellum South. Those are some of the ingredients I would place into your question. If, with, you know, without saying yes or no. Thank, thank, thank you very much. My name's Carmen Playfair. Sorry, I've got a cold. Um, what was the name, please? Could you tell us again, what was the name of the slave whose biography was used by the company? to argue for uh, regulation. Thank you. Could you explain again about the development of the rights of man and um, how uh, the Enlightenment ideas owe, owe a debt for how they um, began the slave trade, not just for, how, for the role they played in ab um, abolition? Thank you. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the point that you made about civil law courts and common law courts. I, I don't understand how these two court systems are different from each other. Thank you. Ah, sorry, sorry, I lost, I lost track. I, lost track. Um, I, was just, I was just thinking about you know, all these issues. Um, his name is William Sisaraku, but he's not a slave. He's an, he's, he's an African prince who is, uh, the African company does this a lot, it cultivates some of the families uh, on the West African coast to improve its kind of local political standing. Uh, and by the 1740s and 50s, the company is sponsoring uh, the education of some of these people in London. 
This person, however, was, uh, and some of them were, enslaved briefly, and the company actually intercepted to have them freed, and then looked after and promoted within London society. So you're right, he is traded briefly. Second one, enlightenment. Yes, the enlightenment connection. It's quite a complex, that's the complex element. Okay, so, uh, you know, does Britain have an enlightenment? Well, most of the French uh, thinkers who we would locate right in the centre of the Enlightenment uh, are talking about an ideal political society. And most of them are thinking of Britain. They adore uh, what has happened in Britain as a result of the uh, uh, Glorious Revolution. Um, so Enlightenment is, is one of those great sort of catch-all phrases that is used much later in the, in the past to interpret what's going on earlier. Um, but I think it's possible to draw a connection between some of these uh, constitutional changes I'm talking about. You know, the, the constitutional supremacy of the legislature, not the monarchy. The uh, celebration of individual rights to assert economic self-interest through political means. Uh, the deregulation of the freedom of the press. These are the kind of constitutional motifs <coughs> that we might necessar not necessarily uh, associate automatically with what might be called the, the continental European enlightenment, but many of those thinkers are looking at England saying that's what we want to do in France. So uh, it's the uh, development of those freedoms in England, you know, ahead of what's going on in Europe, let's face it, that explains why England ships more slaves than anyone else in Europe, up until abolition face of the person will remind me of this the question. Oh yeah, civil law versus common law. So in the context of my argument, civil law would be regarded as a sort of pernicious foreign import. <coughs> common law is the kind of, you know, John Bull native uh, legal system. And corporations and their enforcement power appear to be categorizable as part of a civil law tradition. Uh, in fact, the enforcement power that the monopoly companies have, the African companies pioneering in this respect, it can intercept your cargo. If you're, if you're trying to do a slave trading voyage on your own during the period of monopoly, the company can intercept your ship wherever you are in the world, take you to its local uh, port, bang you up without trial, and leave you to rot. Right? That's not common law. So the common law, it gives you the opportunity and the right to a trial uh, via jury. Uh, um, when the slave trade was uh, set up in the late 17th century, was there any opposition right from the start, like any politicians who stood out against it? No. No. Oh. I'll tell you more. My thinking is, if we were sitting here in 1672, rather than looking back from 2015 and have all our hindsight, and if somebody walked in here and offered you a half share in a slave trip over to Africa where you might make, I don't know, 40, 50,000 guineas, would you take the offer? Mm -hmm. 
Could you uh, talk at all about the uh, how these slaves are actually supplied to the traders? Who supplied them the source of the actual slaves? Okay. Because you were talking about the traders. Well, the traders were trading in a commodity, if you like, to use a yes. horrible word. Um, could you talk about the supply? How, how did that happen? How was that structured? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were some people opposed, uh, but they. part of what happens if you put this issue into the early 18th century parliament, or the late 17th century parliament, is that you can't look at it in solely economic terms because economics as a sovereign discipline doesn't exist. So it has to be considered in the round. And there are clerics and other people who start to say, you know what, I'm not sure that it's right to be trading in other people. Um, and that does bubble up as a result of this parliamentary debate in a way that perhaps it couldn't uh, in, a, you know, in, in, in a court context, I mean in, in, the, in the royal family or in the uh, narrower uh, uh, conversations that took place around the company. Um, but then you might say that a legislature is much more likely to compromise and go for economic growth rather than a moral issue. Um, it's perhaps more difficult to push a moral concern through that deliberative context. But they tend to be Anglican clerics based in uh, the Caribbean in the 1670s and 1680s. Unsurprisingly, they're witnessing the, the system uh, and they uh, are very uh, uh, upset about what they can see. And as I said, their kind of opposition bleeds into a pro-company uh, argument. Um, the face will remind me. Um, this young man asked whether... Oh, would I invest... Um, yes. I would probably. Um, Thank you. I would probably invest in uh, something else. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not all responsible for our, all our ancestors, are we? Just the ones we left. Um, and you, sir? What was, the, what was the last question? Oh yeah. Oh, about the supply chain in West Africa. About the More information about the slaves. You, you're not, you didn't ask me about the slaves, you asked me about the slave Su supply of slaves. <laughs> so how the slaves are getting to West African... Well, the, uh, certainly in the 17th century, for the most part, uh, the, there's a, a sort of internecine uh, political rivalry between uh, African states. Uh, like in Europe, from the 11th century, it's not really possible for Christians to enslave other Christians. There's a kind of pan-European identity that prevents that from happening. If you think about it, the, the cheapest way to solve the, the colony's problem of labor supply is ship Europeans. It's closer and it's easier and you know, it's less risky and violent and unpleasant. But they don't do that. They're looking for an outsider group. But that system wouldn't work alone. You need to have a system on the West African coast in which there are fractured identities, different rival groups who are willing to enslave each other. And that's very important to uh, pushing the supply. That's why they're shipping guns. One way of increasing the supply of people via internecine warfare is giving them the weapons to kill each other and threaten each other. And 
And uh, what else would I say about that? Um, they were captured as well. Later on, later on in the period, we also have Europeans going into the West African interior and directly gathering people. But that doesn't happen to a large extent uh, until the 18th century, as far as I understand it. Hi. In your opinion, um, what do you think is the best way to circumvent this issue of kind of avoiding blame that we have? Do you think an outright admission of guilt by the British government is necessary? Do you, would you go as far as to have Britain pay uh, Jamaica reparations, for example? Hi, thank you for the lecture. Um, a very simple question here. How much of the deregulation of slavery would you say was due to human greed rather than British constitutional values? Hi, um, just thinking about this chap on the yeah. front, and um, am I correct in my understanding that he was a slave before and then made a prince to sort of make the people that owned him look good? Um, and if that is correct, then really he's still not free, even though he is a prince, um, you know, and he's got all this money. But what if he decided, actually, I'm not a free man, I might be rich, but I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. Has there been any sort of evidence that someone did actually decide to try and break away from that and what happened? <coughs> so reparations, payments. I think the microphone's still on. Reparations, payments. My point about this I will stick to, and I mentioned it at the end. Reparations will not happen until it's an electoral issue. The question is, how are you going to make it an electoral issue? Well, you've got to start telling the truth about what happened. Do I think that these people were just greedy? Well, my point is that in the 17th century, all economic outcomes are mediated through political or constitutional mechanisms. Right? That's much more the case in the 17th century than what it is now. But what the English Constitution is certainly doing, and the constitutional change is certainly assisting, is, uh, is, is, a, is a way to broaden access to the economy. In other words, this, the deregulated slave trade provides a kind of broader popular basis for slave trading that the Constitution assists in achieving. So yes, these people were greedy, but that's not a historical phenomenon. That happens everywhere. The turning point here is the constitutional shift. And the realization of economic growth depends on it. So the contingent factor, the historical factor here is the constitutional change. Tell me people are greedy, I'll tell you everybody is always greedy. It's not a historical 
and William Sasaraku. Okay, I think I just need to clarify a little bit. He is from one of these prominent West African families. So he is technically in the kind of West African royal family uh, of a particular small state. Um, and he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and is enslaved or caught up in one of these uh, kidnapping groups uh, and is taken to one of the Caribbean islands. But then the company gets wind of this. The company is very keen to preserve its, uh, its power and its reputation in West Africa. So it uses its connections to get him back, bring him back to West Africa, and then says, okay, we're going to go one step further than that because we're a sort of moral, hospitable organization, and we're going to dress him up like that and take him to London and give him an education and, and, and let him go and see, you know, the opera and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, uh, I mean, how free is he? Um, the way to answer that, I think, is to say that African nobility or African royalty becomes a brand in the 17th century to promote the humanity of Africans. In other words, they promote the humanity of Africans in class terms. Orinoco himself is an African prince. And, you know, how can we possibly... You know, it's fair enough to enslave poor people. No problem. But you can't enslave a prince. That's not okay. Um, so there's a class element to this that becomes very important. Where the Asia stands um, in this trade? I mean, um, did Asians um, were were the Asians um, so? Where the Asia? Uh, okay. Um, I, I want to know um, if the Asian people were um, also um, bought and sold as a slave. And if not, were the slaves uh, sold to Asian countries? For example, in countries in Asia, were um, they the subject of a slavery as well? And if not, were they um, the slaves were sold there or not? Any other question while we're here? Yeah, I don't see why not a second question. No, who is it? Oh, sorry. Um, in, in relation to the this lady asking about Asian, um, I think it's well well um, versed in the Caribbean that the Asians at one point was used as um, a buffer between the slave owners and the slaves. Um, so in many um, Caribbean countries, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Asian, um, would, would be, he would be the overseer. So the slaves will have to report to him. So the Asian was, was viewed on in the Caribbean as one echelon above the slaves and it go it it operates even now here in london town where uh, they will be given more privileges 
than the Africans. It's my understanding. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've never accepted that Liverpool was a major or a, a, a significant slave trade port. Because if you look at the census at the abolition of slavery in 1807, it was just a village. It was just totally insignificant. And I don't know why they keep on about it, about Liverpool, Bristol. The finance came from London, and Bristol was part of the slave thing, I agree. But Liverpool, it was just a village. I don't accept at that time. But I don't, you know, unless, and, and, and where, you yeah. know, So, Asia. So, I mean, lots of things to say about this. I mean, you know, clearly, after the, 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 the abolition isn't the end point that we assume. The vast majority of slaves in the world today are in Asia. And um, it's definitely the case that in the 19th century, various communities from uh, South Asia are transported around the British Empire to substitute uh, for uh, freed uh, African slaves. That happens in Trinidad, happens in Guyana, happens elsewhere. And look at the way in which you know, some of the railways in the uh, Pacific uh, West of the United States are using Chinese labor. You know, uh, slavery is a... Um, is something that does not and has not gone away. And, you know, if we're going to bring Asia into the um, analysis, that, that you might suggest is, is, is where most of the uh, problem of enslavement is at this present time. Um, oh, about the buffers. I mean, I haven't really heard that. I mean, my understanding, talking to historians of Trinidad, um, is that you know the Asian population are brought in from 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 the southern part of, um, of the subcontinent to substitute for freed uh, slaves once the slave trade has, has ended and, and emancipation has taken place. The idea of a sort of racial buffer, uh, I haven't uh, come across before, so I'm not able to comment on that. Is Liverpool a village? <laughs> Or was Liverpool a village? <laughs> Liverpool is certainly a small town in the 17th century. But it has something very valuable, which a lot of other northern cities do not, including Manchester. It has representation in Parliament. It is a corporation. Right? It's for that reason, as well as the ease of access to uh, the Irish Sea, that it's able to lobby so effectively against the uh, monopoly company. And if you look at the census and the economic uh, development of that city, you know, the deregulation is playing a really important part in setting up that economic opportunity. I wouldn't want us to agree on the definition of a village in population terms right now, but I would wager that if you look at the architecture of uh, Liverpool, unless it's some kind of Georgian pastiche, most of it is built uh, in the early 18th century, the city centre. There's some bombing taking place, but it, I'm pretty convinced it was a major port. Comment? Yes, please. 
We all know, uh, or, or, or most people here know, that in 2007, at the 200 years abolition commemoration, um, they took the very place where the slaves came in Liverpool, in the docks, where they were sold, where they were selected, where they were... That place right opposite that building is now the Anti-Slavery Museum of Liverpool, more famous than the Wilberforce Museum in Hull, actually. Um, but Liverpool went from uh, whatever this gentleman might call a sleepy town, a small, insignificant town, and started to flourish because of the slave trade. To the extent that when um, a, a famous politician came to Liverpool and was booed by the, the crowd, um, he sneered at them and said, I will not take any comment or any uh, insults from a place where every red brick is built on the blood of the African Negro. Liverpool surpassed London at some stage in the slave trade. Yeah, but I wanna, I wanna come to the defense of this gentleman's point in stressing that L London's contribution has been dramatically underplayed. But underplayed. 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 Yeah, it is the second uh, slave trading city of this nation after Liverpool. What is Liverpool? No, Liverpool's the first. Uh, I spend a lot of time in central Ghana. Um, louder. I spend a lot of time in central Ghana, uh, central Ghana among little rural villages who often run derbas for visitors. Now, in the derbas, you get traditional dances, which seem to me to be based on slave trade. I've always thought this. I don't know if this is well accepted or not, but you get ladies with um, chains, shackles painted on their bodies, and they dance in rows with... Um, pieces of wood across their shoulders. And if I ask local people, is that based on the slave trade? They say, oh, no, 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 that's our traditional dancing. And so I guess this, I, I, I think I'm probably right. And I think the two have merged together. I would be very interested in reading about anything, about the work that you said has been done. I think you said, if I heard you right, that a lot of work has been done looking at the effects on behavior of the slave trade, or did I mishear that? If there is such work, I'd really like to read it. Mm. This painting here, is it the one that's often misused as Oluada Equiano, or is, 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 because is, it's not, is that who William, William somebody, was that his non-slave name or his slave name? Is that the same person or is it a different person? But also, yeah. right. uh, okay, that's, what I really wanted to ask you, there was, um, do you think that the poverty in Africa today is to do with the years of slavery and colonialization? Because before we had the slave trade, the, what the, the empires in West Africa were some of the richest empires in the world at the time, such as Mansa Musa and Mali and Songhai. That's okay. Uh, since you were talking about British identity and um, slave trade and so forth, I, all we've heard about in terms of cities been London, uh, Liverpool, Bristol. I just wondered whether Glasgow was actually involved in it because it seems to me quite often, and it came up the Scottish referendum, attempt by Scots nationalism to deny their role in British imperialism and in things like the opium trade, and I just wondered if they were involved in the slave trade in Glasgow. Um, that sounds fascinating to me, and I um, <coughs> could share uh, some stories with you about my own time in Ghana, uh, although I didn't experience that. Um, I, but I really am just sort of intrigued by it and would
would like to know more. Um, I couldn't give you any crisp citations on books or articles to read uh, about some of the themes I mentioned uh, to do with the, the physical legacy uh, of enslavement. But, you know, I hate to say this, but the internet will, will get you there um, pretty quickly. Um, second question, oh, over here. This is a really good question about um, Africa. I mean, it has to be said that there are certain people who do very well in Africa, right? like I said, the Africans that's, uh, uh, are controlling the price and do well out of deregulation. Certain Africans, right? a tiny minority of Africans. Um, I think the way to respond to that is to think a little bit more about the 19th century as a, a critical phase in the kind of physical extraction of GDP from the African continent in a systematic uh, way. Uh, and the part played by the abolitionist movement in softening uh, the imperialism of the British and other Europeans as they cease to take the people and start to take the land. Um, abolitionism provides a sort of friendly face to British imperialism in Africa. Um, and as I explained, I think, earlier, um, the slave trade, in a sense, is a, is a symptom of African strength not weakness, because the African population will not allow all the Europeans to have any sovereignty over territory. There's no coincidence that when the trade is then abolished, they start to penetrate the interior of the continent. Isn't there different Different people. There are lots of portraits of Equiano. Yeah, um, many of them are discredited. Yeah. But you know, who knows what he really looked like? <laughs> um, this one, is a National Portrait Gallery oil painting, but there's also an engraving that's exactly the same on the front cover of the book yeah. about him. So th th that's him. So William and Aurora are different people. Different people, okay. yeah. Th this is slightly earlier in yeah. time. I mean, we had the Glasgow question. Great question. Glasgow is heavily involved, uh, not just in sugar refining and tobacco trading, but also um, in the development of sort of families of slave traders. Um, but, you know, Alex Salmon and co. have to bear in mind, and sometimes they do, there were some nationalist historians who were talking about this, that the greatest gift the English gave the Scottish was access to the British Empire. And boy, did they exploit it. Dominating uh, officials and professional positions in the East India Company and all over the Caribbean too. There's no coincidence as far as I'm concerned. Two things they get out of it, uh, the empire and industrialization. When those things have gone, 